Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners are advised that the following program may contain images and voices of people who have died. Welcome once again to Football Belongs. I'm Richard Bayless. Just a reminder, the podcast and chapter are different to each other, so we recommend you listen and read to get the full experience, in whichever order suits you. For now, though, it's over to your host, David Davudovich. Thanks, Richard. Today's subject, People of the First Nations. The match in focus is one that never happened. Australia's 1960 tour of Southeast Asia, which was cancelled after we were banned by FIFA. Today's special guests, Adelaide United great and ex-Socceroo Travis Dodd and Managing Director and Co-Founder of Moriarty Foundation and Ballaringi, the strategy and design business whose award-winning artwork you would have seen if you've ever flown on Qantas aircraft, Roz Moriarty. And finally, series inspiration John Didelitzer, a former National Soccer League midfielder who himself did a significant amount of work to support John Moriarty football and Indigenous programs during his time as the Players' Union Chief. He's currently CEO of W Sports and Media. Now, John Moriarty is a central figure in today's podcast and the accompanying chapter, another exquisite piece of writing from John Didelitzer. Moriarty was a soccer superstar back in the 1950s and 60s, along with his Indigenous mates Charles Perkins and Gordon Briscoe and was selected to represent Australia before he was even allowed to vote. This, among many other anecdotes to be unpacked in this podcast, symbolising the unheralded role football and its migrant communities played in embracing the First Nations people during a shameful era in Australian history. The chapter explores how, at each opportunity for a significant leap forward for the Indigenous community, Australia lets its First Nations people down. John Didelitzer, this chapter obviously draws parallels between the First Nations people and football in terms of that outsider status, which is a central theme in this podcast series. Thanks, Dave. I think, you know, John Moriarty's story is so compelling because it speaks to this continual this continuing theme of Indigenous life since colonisation in in 1788. You know, this notion of the near miss, the Indigenous person clawing their way through every obstacle, putting their path, clearing it only to be let down. Um, you know, every time there seems to be some genuine demonstration uh, or an authentic commitment to resolving this original sin of the Australian nation, uh, we fail. Um, and that failure belongs to, you know, to adopt a term used by the First Nations people, the Whitefella. Um, we failed John Moriarty by you know, engineering an exclusion from FIFA, and there's numerous times during our history where we've done the same. And, and John's story speaks about that really poetically. Uh, two of the, the key aspects I've looked at to support this type of argument 
is the Uluru Statement from the Heart. We seek a Makarata Commission to supervise a process of agreement making between governments and First Nations and truth-telling about our history. In 1967, we were counted. In 2017, we seek to be heard. We leave base camp and start our trek across this vast country. We invite you to walk with us in a movement of the Australian people for a better future. Where we we finally had enormous groups of Indigenous people coming together to articulate why constitutional recognition was so important, and doing so in an incredibly balanced, progressive, heartfelt way, yet that was dismissed out of hand by the then Prime Minister. We understand the cry from the heart that came from Uluru. It is a serious proposal that we will consider seriously uh, and we're going to, th- we're going to thoughtfully and respectfully uh, consider it. It is a, changing the constitution is a very big challenge. And that reflected political policy for the last seven prime ministers, all of whom have promised to do something but delivered very little. Um, you also look at it through an AFL lens, a sport that's held itself up, that even calls itself the Indigenous game, held itself up as this great model for reconciliation. Yet when they had the opportunity to stand up and support uh, the First Nations people with Adam Goods, they failed to do so. Racism has no place in society, it has no place in our industry. Football's racism row has erupted again. I'll continue to stand up. This is unacceptable because it's black. It's their voice. We are racist. It's shocking. The backlash intensified. He knew why it was happening. We need to talk about this. You get what you wish for. Suddenly, it wasn't just Adam Goods, the footballer. He was Adam Goods, the angry Aboriginal. This theme is repeated time and again through Australian history. And I think John's story speaks very loudly to that, both in the fact he missed that game, but moreover, where him and Charles Perkins actually made conscious decisions in their life to shift away almost their focus from sport into the social causes uh, they felt incredibly passionate about. Um, uh, you know, if you look at Charles Perkins yeah, at this point, I'll, I'll probably go off on a little bit of a tangent, uh, Dave, but if you look at Charles Perkins, he emerged as one of the most influential Indigenous Australians of all. You know, he spearheaded a lot of the Freedom Rides leading into the 1967 referendum that you'll no doubt talk about. The Freedom Ride of 1965 was a significant event in the history of civil rights for all Australians. Inspired by the Freedom Riders of the American Civil Rights Movement, students from the University of Sydney, led by the legendary Charles Perkins, embarked on a journey through Western New South Wales to expose racism and segregation. And from that time became a really prominent voice for the rights of Indigenous Australians, and he was an incredibly powerful, or incredibly passionate soccer man. But what's more important in a story that I only uh, stumbled across researching this piece was that we all know, or many of us know, that Charles Perkins was invited to trial with Manchester United by the great Matt Busby in the early 1960s, um, whilst he was playing um, in the UK, which in and of itself is an incredible feat. Uh, he knocked that back 
uh, came back to Australia. But whilst he was playing in the UK, he played a club called Oxford United. Now, Oxford United are linked to the world-famous Oxford University, and he went to those grounds to play them. And he walked around those grounds. He soaked in the atmosphere of that facility. And at that point, he recounts being inspired to go back to Australia and go to university and graduate with a degree. I wanted, first of all, to prove to everybody that didn't already know that an Aborigine has the intellect to be able to stay at university. So what did he do? He goes back to Australia, becomes the first Indigenous man to graduate from the University of Sydney in 1965, and that really becomes his springboard for one of our great uh, advocates. So this spark was lit by football. So this Indigenous thread that's run through modern Australian history was something that Charles Perkins realised whilst exploring a career as a footballer. So there's this incredible intersection between the the arc of Indigenous people in the last 200 years of football over the past century, but also how they've come together through people like John Moriarty and Charles Perkins. And this was no Mickey Mouse trial. Uh, it wasn't without precedent. His club, Bishop Auckland, assisted Man United after the 1958 Munich air disaster. And uh, one of those players, Warren Bradley, went on to play for England. Uh, I'll bring, it, bring in Roz Moriarty now and uh Roz thanks for joining us you did you have a foot in both camps you were born in Tasmania and Aussie girl of English and Welsh extraction uh, you met young John Moriarty back in 1978 what kind of person was he and what role did sport and football play in shaping him hi David uh, nice to be here to chat um, I met John, you're right, um, in the late 70s in an era in Canberra, whereas John has just mentioned, um, you know, politics were really heated and exciting. And I think that hope and anticipation that things would change were happening. You know, it was the Whitlam years. It was the establishment, actually, of the Department for Aboriginal Affairs. For the first time, Aboriginal people had a direct voice to the minister. And uh, these were changes that John was wholeheartedly part of. He'd moved from... Adelaide. He'd um, set up in Canberra. I was a young researcher. He was a senior bureaucrat. Uh, we were all doing a lot of work all around Australia, looking at, interestingly, giving voice to Aboriginal people themselves and looking at what was shaping uh, their lives. And, uh, you know, I think you're right that football had such an impact and such a formative influence on John's life. I mean, from, for the nearly 40 years I've known John, I, you know, I know that all, lead, all roads lead to and from football. And that's a very powerful thing, given the trajectory of John's life and the sort of background that, um, that John D, that JD has, um, has described. Yep, John D, John M. John M, just looking at some photos of him, uh, he was a striking young man. How did he sweep, uh, sweep you off, off your feet? Oh, that's really classified information, David. <laughs> um, yeah, John, John was a very good-looking guy. He was, um, you know, he really, speaking of people who have foot in both camps, in two camps, you know, John was really at ease in the bush, and we spent a lot of time, and we still do, in remote Australia, where he's from, where... His mum spoke eight Aboriginal languages and where he's deeply connected to country, you know, had to regain those connections after having been one of the stolen generation kids. Um, but, you know, John was equally comfortable in Canberra and he really had the confidence to stake his claim and stake his claim on behalf of others for what he sure thought a better future should look like. 
Travis Dodd, you spent a lot of time with John Moriarty and you're also embraced by Adelaide City Football Club, as he was. Uh, tell us about your story and your Indigenous identity. Yeah, well, it's a, it is, a, I guess, somewhat interesting in that I came into football uh, through a friend at school. Um, my, my best mate, one of my best mates growing up was a uh, Scottish Italian, had Scottish Italian parents, um, but they were just football through and through. So I went, went out and played, uh, uh, had a session with these, with my mate, uh, at the local club around the corner from my house, St. Augustine soccer club. And I've never looked back since. And that was, uh, at the age of five years. So uh, my my mum and dad split when I was very young at the age of eight. Um, dad is Indigenous and played Aussie rules, uh, but never really pushed me or my brother uh, towards the game. And you know, he just let us be with doing what we love doing uh, and what we wanted to do. Uh, so f football was it for us uh, as kids growing up. Um, you know, I, I played at that one club. Uh, in the northern suburbs of of Adelaide, where I have to say it was, uh, I guess it was a very English-oriented, you know, uh, background in in the area that I grew up in, and you know, a lot of people s tell me now that it sounds like I've got an English accent, but I think that's just from growing up with the the people around me. Um, it wasn't until I went to to Adelaide City at the age of thirteen, uh, going into to a, an Italian club, and as uh, John mentions in this chapter, John Moriarty uh, mentions, uh, he felt embraced uh, and taken in as, as one of their own. And that's how I felt as well. Um, I will say most definitely, though, that I I didn't suffer from the, the bouts of racism and, and things like that as I was growing up as a child. Um, but certainly going into Adelaide City, they, I think it took... An, number of years for them to actually realize that or ask if I was Aboriginal because they all thought that I was either, <clears throat> excuse me, they thought I was Italian or Spanish or, you know, something like that, South American. Um, so, you know, that, that feeling of being embraced was great. Um, and, you know, I was fortunate to, to go on with my career there. I guess when we're talking about uh, identity, uh, it's probably something that I've struggled with for, for a long time. Uh, I did. Uh, I, I spent some time working for NAB at the bank. I was there for four years, and uh, most recently, um, they you know, in the last year, they they sent me to Melbourne for uh, a young Indigenous leadership program, and it was a group of about uh, twenty Indigenous employees within NAB, and you know, they're there to develop leaders within the company. But tellingly, everybody there, well. 99% of the, the participants, me included, uh, all wanted to understand our culture more because we'd all been brought up where we you know, 
whether it was split parents or whatever the circumstances may be, but we were a lot of us were brought up where we didn't have the opportunity to connect with our culture growing up. So uh, being in that environment where not not really knowing your family background and knowing you know, not having been to where your ancestors are from uh, I guess I look at that and previous to going to this uh, this program you feel a little bit of shame because well, certainly what I felt because I felt like I'm indigenous and I should know all this stuff but one of the, the very important things that I learned at that time was that it's, it's okay not to know. It's okay to say that you know, you're, you're still learning about your, your culture and your, your family and background and all that kind of stuff. And since then, you know, I've felt a lot more comfortable in my skin uh, in, in saying to people, I, I didn't have that, that, uh, that upbringing of you know, understanding where my family was from and all that. And, and that's a learning journey that I'm still on now. And John Moriarty has played a big role uh, in helping you um, discover your indigenous heritage and uh, and learning about some of those uh, some of those Dreamtime stories. Yeah, he's he's fantastic. And uh, when we spoke before, Dave, I I said uh, particularly when uh, I had an opportunity to go to to Boorilula, uh, and and experience you know, what that community is like, and seeing those kids there was amazing, uh, and and just knowing that. That he was the driving force in getting that for the kids, uh, and and what he's providing them not only not only an opportunity to play football, but an opportunity for education and to help develop young Indigenous kids to be better role models in the community and better leaders within the the wider community. Uh, but the time that we spent in in Alice Springs, he was taking me around to to areas and. And he tells a great story about the the landmarks and and what it means and it's something that that I didn't have growing up and I just it was like being a sponge just trying to take all of this information in and, and understand it and whilst it wasn't where my family was from it was just great to to hear somebody with that that I guess spiritual knowledge and and to be able to tell those stories. Ros, you touch on it extensively in your memoirs, Listening to Country. Just tell us about your first trip to Borolula with John. My first trip up there, I think when I was about 21 and it was a research trip, it was part of a work trip. Having grown up in Tassie, as you said, to me, beautiful landscapes were all about greens and blues and lush mountain vistas and suddenly it was like a moonscape. You know, he was this dry, red, um, seemingly empty part of Australia that was just nowhere in my mind's eye. But very quickly, I realised that the sort of spirituality I'd sensed in John that Travis is talking about, it just comes out of that country itself. And so the first trip back, and I think it was it was consecutive trips and going up and down and taking our kids up and down, you know, driving the five days out of Adelaide, up to the Gulf and um, sitting up there on the Gulf with the old people and listening to stories. And, um, you know, it was, it was actually about 25 years before I wrote that memoir because I felt that I really, you know, needed to sit and listen um, for all those years and then work with the community to, to say what, what the book says. Um, but being on country, the, the way Travis is describing it, um, you know, it isn't something, as Travis says, that everyone has to understand completely. But as JD says too, 
you know, an awakening and a realisation and a respect from Australia that this is our first story. This is, you know, where our belonging as a nation has been invited to be. Um, you know, if we can meet people part of that way and have that respect and, um, and, and share this country, I guess, and that's where I think these conversations around um, being excluded or included or being part of the story, not part of the story, being whether it's football or whether it's our country itself, these stories are really intertwined. JD, as you touch on in the chapter and as you just alluded to, Charles Perkins abandoned his football career to search for the social, his social voice and his sights were set on returning home when that uh, offer of a trial was submitted to him by Manchester United. His sights were set on, becoming home, on coming home and becoming a big force and he soon completed his uni degree. Now, in recent times, these issues uh, that Charles and, and John Moriarty advocated for, they're live issues in Australia here in 2000. And 21 Australia Day being one of them and a fresh AFL race controversy involving Collingwood and former player Brazilian-born uh, Heritier Lumumba. John, it's a, another example of the themes in your chapter playing out in Australian sport. You touch on the AFL too, specifically its treatment of Adam Goods. Yeah, uh, look, it, I think what's really important to recognise is that John Moriarty and Charles Perkins, you know, first and foremost, were incredible footballers, incredible athletes. Um, and that was done against incredible odds. You know, John Moriarty's story about being taken from his mother around the time of World War II, Ros, you might correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, the early 1940s, um, plonked in South Australia, uh, bouncing from home to home, uh, finding some solace um, at a football club and really through those clubs becoming integrated um, within those communities. You know, at that time, people forget that if, uh, if you know, and someone like Gordon Briscoe, I think, says that he opted to play football because when he went to play Aussie Rules, they did two things. Firstly, they refused to pay him unlike the other players who were being paid. And secondly, they forced him to get changed in separate change rooms. That wasn't happening within the soccer community. The, and Johnny Warren says in his own book that Charles's, in Johnny's memoirs, that Charles's rationalisation was that the enemy of our enemy is our friend. And they all seemed to be totally integrated into the local soccer communities and felt as one as, as Travis alluded to. Um, so there was this great build-up of energy in and around the 60s. And John, he had a bad knee, so he, he ultimately uh, finished playing in the, in the mid-60s. Uh, but Charles left the game. Um, and I'll throw in a little anecdote here as well, Dave, about how Charles Perkins actually landed at Sydney University. Uh, he, and this is this incredible intersection between, say, multicultural Australia and you know, the role of Charles Perkins is he, at the time, returned to Australia after his stint in the UK to play for Adelaide, Croatia. And the president of Adelaide, Croatia was a guy called Branko Filippi. And Branko, in forming Adelaide, Croatia, was the first person to ever bring to life a Croatian football club in Australia. So, you know, we spoke about in one of the earlier episodes, the 2006 
Australia versus Croatia game and what a massive moment that was in the history of Australian sport. You know, a, a large part of that can trace its roots back to that Adelaide Croatia being founded in 1950. So this guy, Branko Filippi, who founded this club and started this thread, was the guy who Charles Perkins spoke to when he wanted to set out on his journey to uh, Sydney University. He'd been paid a big you know, sign-on fee and all these match fees. And Charles said, look, I'll, I really want to go to Sydney and pursue this. And Branko Filippi you know, shook his hand, wished him well and said, don't worry about paying me a cent back. You know, I want you to do this. And Charles goes off and achieves what he does, at the same time being, I suppose, financially supported by Pan Hellenic, who are the current day Sydney Olympic. During that time I played soccer. So soccer, you know, being fit, it really complements your study, makes your study better, you know. And then during the breaks, Eileen used to work wherever she could. She could find part-time work to keep me going. But I played soccer to win because we had no other money coming in, really. You know, so these great traditional multicultural clubs that have played such a great role in helping our migrant community settle in Australia also had this played this great platform in helping Charles Perkins and, and John become the great advocates uh, they were. So as we you know as as we move forward, um, we're facing many of the same challenges now that we were facing then, and that's really tied back to the fact that um, football. Um, indigenous communities tend to sit on the outside of what's considered to be mainstream Australia. You know, Travis spoke earlier about this disconnect um, to his culture that he wasn't able to uh, uh, have to enjoy whilst he was growing up. Um, we look at something like Australia Day, which is ostensibly a day that you know overtly carves out a group of its citizens from being allowed to enjoy it. You know, whatever your views you know, your views are on it. You can't escape the fact that Indigenous Australians would clearly be upset by the fact that we're choosing to celebrate a day of great pain to them. Um, so many of these issues uh, continue to this day and it's really comes back to the fact that, you know, football and um, from a footballing perspective, but certainly with Indigenous um, communities, they're not perceived to be um, integrated effectively into the way we do things. Ros, what are your thoughts? I'm thinking all kinds of things while you're chatting away, JD. Um, I'm thinking actually about Travis and, you know, you being in the club for so long and the missed opportunity they had, I guess, to, you know, recognise your Aboriginality. And given that, you know, John was at Juventus and became Adelaide City and uh, it's a it's a curious kind of thing that that opportunity you know you had to wait for that opportunity until you're in a corporate environment. So to me, there's a lot that can be done that's more intentional in in football. I think that's where the big absence has been that there hasn't been this intentional, um, deliberate um, grasping and embracing of Indigenous players. And you know, if we look at who you've been, so you know, Travis, if we look at you. You know, um, you're, you're a captain of uh, of. Adelaide. Here's Travis Dodd on the hat trick and mark it down. Travis Dodd, route one from the keeper. Robbie Bayes gets the assist, but what a night for Travis Dodd. Now, again, it was the speed of Travis Dodd. We're looking at, uh, you know, Jade North, who captained Brisbane. We're looking at John, who was the first player selected for Australia. Um, we're looking at our current Matildas, you know, Lydia Williams and, and Kaya Simon, Gemma Simon. They're not number makers. You know, you are players who ha are, who are um, standouts in the game. 
So the idea that somewhere between, you know, John and then your career and then our current crop of, um, of footballers, Indigenous footballers, where there wasn't a light bulb moment to say, how do we generate more of these players? How do we support them? You know, how do we join the conversation? Because the sort of conversations, JD, that you're describing have been around a really long time. I mean, when I met John in the late 70s, it was a decade after he'd fought long and hard for the referendum to give him, uh, to make him a citizen and to make to mean that he would be counted in the census, even though in the early 60s, um, you know, he'd been travelling to play for South Australia. So these anomalies are, are old. And as you say, uh, I think we have to question why they remain. Travis? Look, it's there's there's just so many things I guess we we can discuss there. It's you know, starting, I guess, to JD's comments. Uh, it's still happening today. There's these elements of racism. We talk about uh, Australia Day, and I got asked to to write a piece actually um, for the first time for the for the PFA, uh, JD's former former employer, um, <laughs> and my my comments were. Australia Day for me is now about reflection because when I was growing up, it I, I celebrated Australia Day because everybody else around me did and I knew no different. So for me, it, Australia Day, I was with my mates and, and that's it, is, it was what it was. Uh, it wasn't until I be, uh, was much older and took it upon myself to, I guess, to understand and, and start educating myself to realise, okay, now I understand what this is all about and now I think about on Australia Day what it must have been like uh, then for the for the First Nation people when you know the the white people came onto the land you know, uh, you know what it was like to to be moved off of your land uh, where you where you lived where you where you were connected to your country uh, so you know, I don't have I don't get upset or um, you know angry at people I mean I had a had a bit of a disagreement with with my mother-in-law yeah, Trivia, is it Adam Sarota and Jade North, the two? No, I uh, don't think it was Jade North. Um, it was Adam Sarota and there was one more. Um, David Williams? To... Dave Williams, yes, correct. Yeah, Very good. Um, just, yeah, that's some really good points. I really like, you know, Ros, this notion of embedding institutionally the learnings that we have. You know, the example of, of Travis triggering that reawakening whilst working at the NAB as opposed to whilst he was in a sporting environment. Mm-hmm. You know, and that speaks, you know, appallingly of the what we have this really short-term outlook in the management of sport at both club and uh, governing body level where we need to really step back and sometimes understand our deeper purpose. But one sport that really I think's done that is the AFL. Now, the, the AFL, um, and Travis, you raised the Collingwood report earlier, and from 1908, to 19, sorry, from 1906 to 1980, only 18 players who claimed indig- Indigenous heritage played in the VFL. Um, last season in 2020, there were over 100 players. So there's been this incredible spike since about 1980 as to the volume of Indigenous players who have played AFL, uh, whereas prior to that, it was really a, a blip on the radar or certainly a, an exception to the rule. Um, and they... You know, for since 1980, they've really driven this. Um, yeah, as I alluded to earlier, they really refer to themselves as, as the Indigenous game. 
you know, time it again. This week, the AFL has been promoting its annual Indigenous Round, a fixture celebrating its Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island players. It's sort of something that we call our own, and uh, there's not many things out there that the Indigenous people can say that, you know, it belongs to them. John this year's event takes on a little more significance given the league is celebrating 150 years since the first match was played in Melbourne. In my view, it's incredibly manufactured. It's about trying to appropriate tens of thousands of years of history um, because their sport is localised and doesn't have the layers of the other sports. And and you referenced this in your chapter, John. I yeah. Mean, it only entered the AFL lexicon during the Andrew Demetriou era in the AFL and Roy Hay has written about it uh, extensively. Yeah, I mean, it, it, this notion of um, the AFL being a derivative or, or a successor sport to Mangrook, um, which is a, an ancient <coughs> Indigenous game, um, started in the early 1980s and the AFL really jumped on that and used it as an anchor to, uh, they used it as a story that could anchor the game in the, you know, the ancient history of the Indigenous people, whereas Roy Hay writes quite, you know, compellingly about this is a, a fiction and not something that overtly happened. Um, and the AFL's continued to build on that and, and create this really powerful image of its advocacy in this space. And superficially, that appears to be the case with the large transition of Indigenous players from their local communities into the AFL, which deserves um, tremendous um, recognition. And, you know, we all applaud and love the quality of the Indigenous players who have played the game from Maurice Rioli to Eddie Betts. They're just wonderful uh, footballers. Um, but at the tail end of that, we had the Adam Goods situation. And Adam Goods, for me is as good an athlete as Australia's ever seen. You know, his record as an AFL player, two Brownlee medals, two premierships, 350 games, um, played across three decades. You know, he, he deserves to be not only recognised as a great AFL, or and, and not only as a great Indigenous player, not only as a great AFL player, but as one of our greatest ever sports people. And sadly, his career ended with choruses of, of boos. And when push came to shove, the AFL industry, the AFL community wasn't there to protect Adam from that. Um, and since that time, he's been alienated from the sport, much the same way that in politics we've seen the Uluru Statement from the Heart disconnected from the Constitution, much the same way we saw John Moriarty unable to represent the Socceroos, and it's a significant indictment on the AFL that for all the rhetoric, for all the other work they've done, is that institutionally the game wasn't able to recognise um, Adam Goods' contribution to it. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
Let's go back to the 50s and 60s. Context here is important. Now, a quote uh, from uh, within the chapter uh, that you've taken from John Maynard's book, The Aboriginal Soccer Tribe, uh, from John Moriarty, quote, the Italian people just accept accepted me as if I was theirs uh, in reference to the Adelaide City people. Then also a quote from Johnny Warren, who we've referenced regularly in this podcast series. Uh, there was a kinship that existed between the emerging Indigenous talent and those new Australians who were forming football clubs and driving football in Australia in the post-war years. In some respects, they were partners against and victims of the entrenched Anglophone white Australia policy. Now, I wanted to throw it to you, Travis, appropriate that you join us from Adelaide, for that's where it all began for these Indigenous soccer superstars, we'll call them, uh, as it was known back then, uh, which included Gordon Briscoe. Now, paint a picture of those grassroots fields in Adelaide back in the 50s. <laughs> paint a picture. Uh, I imagine I imagine it would be uh, bare fields, uh, you know, dirt, um, uh, you think about how these guys uh, became footballers, and you know, reading reading a story from John, uh, you know, when he was you know, at a home and and watching the the state under eighteen team train, and being asked by the by the coach to to put a team together and and give them give the state team a, a go, uh, you know, a few black fellas getting out there and beating the state team. 12 nil. You know, Gave him an uh, absolute telling. It's, it's amazing. Uh, and, you know, and you think about, you know, why did that opportunity come, you know, and, and how? I mean, I think at that time, you know, when you talk about Aussie rules, was that as prominent, uh, you know, in South Australia as it would have been in, in Victoria? Is that why there, there seemed to be, you know, uh, a lot of players coming out of, you know, Indigenous players coming out of South Australia at the time? Because, you know, soccer was more of a focus. Maybe that, that was the case. I don't know. But, um, you know, certainly the opportunity for these guys to, to, to play, I'm, I imagine, would have been scarce. Uh, and, and when they, they had them as this, you know, the opportunity to play against a state team and then go on to, you know, play at club level would have been, you know, and, and beyond would have been fantastic. Now, once upon a time, as we said, football had more Indigenous players than AFL. Harry Williams was another one, uh, the first Aboriginal to represent the Socceroos at a FIFA World Cup back in 74. And I've seen videos of Johnny Warren talking about this is the time that we need to really uh, capitalise on this and send balls and, and shirts into the Indigenous communities. Now, I'd also like to acknowledge Karen Menzies, who was the first Indigenous player to represent the Matildas. Now, pound for pound, women's football's produced more Indigenous footballers than the men's game recently. Uh, we touched on Lydia Williams and Kaya Simon as the headliners. The AFL and, to a lesser extent, NRL are producing much more Indigenous players. Now, Roz, you're the FA Women's Football Council chair and you're heavily invested in John Moriarty football. What's going on at grassroots level in the Indigenous communities? So back to some of those stories um, of John sitting on the fence, Travis, and getting invited to play and eventually being given <laughs> a pair of boots and then agreeing to play, and then that's what started all off. Um, he also talks about a guy called uh, Mick O'Malley, who's a Scotsman, um, and he worked at the Electricity Trust in Adelaide, uh, where John was doing his fitting and turning apprenticeship. So they pretty much told the kids at 15 that that was it in the boys' home. They needed to go and get a trade. 
Um, so John was out doing that and um, he said Mick was a labourer and uh, every about three or four times a week Mick would take John to a nearby field and he would drill him in football. And John said it was so much due to Mick, you know, week after week, month after month, the encouragement, the mentoring, the confidence that Mick gave him and the skill set that he helped John build was really a natural fit for obviously the athleticism that John had. And so, you know, over the years thinking about, well, all these questions about, you know, why have there been so few to follow in John's footsteps and where is the mentoring and where's the development? When we looked to set up John Moriarty Football, uh, which is coming into its 10th year now, um, that was all around the success factors that might take that luck, that, that haphazardness out of developing Indigenous football. So if AFL's done anything well, I think they've gone out in volume, they've gone out with significant investment, um, they've had a commitment over a long period of time. For us, it was about much more than the football, much more than the sport. And uh, it was all about what football can do for people like John, um, who set him on a different life course, who showed him that he could be, and he talks about, you know, they, they saw me for me, not just my skin. And anyone who knows John knows he's incredibly proud of his skin. You know, he would, he would rather be Aboriginal than anything on earth. He does like being Irish as well. <laughs> um, but, you know, he had this sense that, um, that, that he was being seen for who he was and he could be mobile in society and he could make choices. And so that's really driven the way we've set up John Moriarty Football, which is um, a holistic program of, yes, it is centred in football and it's very much about skills development. And we know the talent's there. It's almost the byproduct. You know, we are already producing a young Matilda and a couple of young boys who've just arrived um, setting out on their journey with, um, with Manly and Sydney FC and Westfield Sports High. They're heading into year 10 and 11. These are kids from one from Dubbo and one from uh, North Queensland standout talents. So we know we'll get the standout talents, but it's the 1,500 kids that we train every week in three states, sometimes in really remote regions, you know, and our 29 coaches who are all developing expertise in how to mentor as well as coach, as well as um, teach nutrition and to look at emotional self-regulation and, uh, and not just sports psych, but, you know, psychology for life. And uh, so this holistic program, we've believed over 10 years, is what can create systemic change. And that's the exciting part for us, I think. One of my favourite moments of the 2014 World Cup, Roz, and uh, we had a text exchange about this the other day, was uh, seeing John and, and the kids from Borolola come. There were about eight to ten of them, and they were in Brazil, and they got to meet Ange Postacoglu and Timmy Cahill. He was their big hero, let's be honest, and, and the Socceroos, and they were just so excited. I mean, most of these kids, if I'm not mistaken, had not been out of Borrelula and dead set. I sent you the photo of this young Cade Morrison. He was my favourite and most testing um, interview of that World Cup. Uh, one of those players has gone on to play in the W League, Shadeen Evans. Now, um, yeah, if you could just reflect on that and just tell us exactly where things are at right now and what needs to happen moving forward. That Brazil trip was, you know, an eye-opener for those kids. There were four girls and four boys. As you say, Shay was, was one of those girls and came back wanting to play one day for the Matildas. So she's partway there. She's played for the young Matildas. She's vice-captained the young Matildas now and she's scored internationally and she's played a couple of seasons with Sydney. Nice cross. Oh, there it is. That is the first goal and it is a goal for Shadeen Evans. What a wonderful way to announce yourself in season 12. She also finished year 12 uh, in Sydney at Westfield Sports High. So this is this holistic approach of education, 
also being a critical part of the journey and opportunities that won't come along to kids in these remote and regional areas, um, but also to look at uh, pathways and support for those pathways and development that is unique to their, not just their needs, but their assets. So I mentioned before that players like Travis were never making up the numbers. Um, you know, these are, and, and you know, so many of, of our players in in the AFL are not there to make up the numbers. As you say, they are, they are superstars. And so, you know, what are the ingredients to create that in terms of football development, um, pastoral care, um, you know, transition to, to environments? It's complex and it's intensive. So, you know, we have um, across the foundation around 35 staff across Australia looking after the development of Indigenous football. I think the national body has just advertised for one part-time staff member. Um, it's great that they're looking to make a start, but I think JD probably agree that it's been a long time coming for the national body to, you know, say, yes, Indigenous football is something that we will commit to. Uh, the reason uh, John Rowdy football exists is that we could not convince the powers that be that this was a worthy investment in Australian football. So we've been carrying that can now for the 10 years and we're looking to now expand nationally and it'll be great to have the national body come along and to get involved. Um, but, you know, it is, a, it is a unique field in terms of, first of all, doing no harm um, and, you know, having the Indigenous community lead this. I think, John, the whole... JD, the whole um, emphasis around statement from the heart is that the Indigenous voice itself mm. is what is critical and important. And, uh, you know, the rest of us are really facilitators of that voice. Um, but to provide, um, you know, uh, tools and um, strategies and expertise and options and support and investment, you know, that's the duty, I think, of the code. Um, but to be very mindful of the community itself driving uh, you know, how this can benefit the Indigenous community because there's a great opportunity for football as, you know, as, as such a diverse sport. You know, football has multiculturalism in its DNA. It's, it's, it's where it came from. It's the global game. It's the world game. Um, it will be remiss of this code not to get this right and there is a great opportunity to move forward. JD? Yeah, look, I, I echo some of those um, sentiments, Ros. I, I think where a governing body seeks, seeks to appropriate that sort of activity, there's echoes of that colonial paternal attitude, which I think is important we move away from. I think even reading the, the Collingwood report that resonated with me um, is that it's such a complexity built into managing these issues. It's impossible to navigate as a bolt-on to an existing business. This needs to be an organic process that's cultivated over years, not something that can just be um, you know, created on a spreadsheet and bolted onto an existing business. And I think we're at risk within the game. If that's the way we approach it, then we're at risk of letting things down and making them quite fragile. And as again in the, the Collingwood Report, it talks about the damage that causes. It's not just about missing an opportunity. It's actually about those you're engaging with, engaging with them and leaving them with an incredibly poor and damaging experience. And that's what we risk doing if we don't manage these things carefully and properly. Um, I love the notion of education within Indigenous football, and it reminded me of John's story from 1963, where he went to Sweden to try it as a soccer player and the UK. But what he loved about it was the life lessons that he learned um, and the pride that he developed in being an Indigenous person, 
um, in Europe. He, he spoke about how he was accepted by everybody, how um, he never felt, the, I suppose, the shame of being an indigenous, indigenous person that he felt in Australia. So it was a great, it's a, there's a great parallel with what the work you're doing now with getting these life lessons through football as opposed to the other way around. Um, I'd love, I'd just like to interrogate one point with you, Roz, that's really interesting to me is you have somebody that's come, um, who's alien to football, alien to indigenous life until you met John. So you came to this as a, you know, girl from Tasmania of Irish and Welsh stock. You didn't have a, a horse. English and Welsh. English was it? Sorry. English and Welsh. You didn't have a horse in any of these races. So what's your perception of the way that mainstream Australia perceives football and perceives the First Nations people, as somebody who's really got a really unique perspective on both, or all three? It's a really big question, John. Um, That's why it's a podcast. We have ample time <laughs> to ventilate your answer. Yeah, and, you know, I've been with John nearly 40 years now. Um, and, you know, even though I'm of English and Welsh background and I guess a majority, I'm part of the majority in this country, I'm an absolute minority in my household. I have an Aboriginal husband and three Aboriginal kids, um, now adult kids and now um, a grandchild. So for me, it was immersion, um, you know, in John's community, in his story. Um, I found it hard to understand when he first told me that he was taken away as a stolen generation kid. I mean, it wasn't called that then. Um, I remember him talking about it. We were out somewhere in Canberra threw some chops on a pan in the fire somewhere and uh, he was just talking about being, you know, his mum sending him to school for the day when he was four years old to Roper River um, along the track from where he was born and where he was living as a four-year-old in a land of plenty in the camp of his grandparents. He was sent to school for the day. She went to pick him up and they said to her, he's gone. So she didn't know where he'd gone. They'd loaded him and a number of the other small kids, paler kids. John had an Irish father. Um, and, and some of the older girls onto the back of an army truck. They'd driven them to Alice Springs. John's stepfather at the time had, um, had ridden and, um, and in cattle transport had actually, they'd made their way, he and one of John's uncles had made their way to Alice Springs to chase the kids. They always said that they lost their scent in Alice Springs when those kids were loaded onto a train, sent to Adelaide, Melbourne, Sydney, and then out to the Blue Mountains. So I had to ask John to tell me that story a couple of times. I, it was not in my experience growing up in Tassie. Um, that, that stage, I was in my early 20s. Um, I'd never heard that story. It wasn't in any of the history that we'd ever encountered. So I found it really hard to assimilate. I then found it incredibly distressing. And when we had our own children, um, yeah, it was just, and it, you know, it's still something that I don't think the trauma of that ever goes away. I mean, John, for anyone who knows him, knows just how incredibly positive he is and how he feels he's had such a fortunate life and he identifies things, you know, he would he would identify the whole football experience as being just a godsend to his life and, you know, people who did a simple thing of buying him lunch at school when he wasn't telling anyone he didn't have any. Mm. Um, you know, there, there are so many points that, that John just has never really had expectations of life and, uh, you know, as an Australian with uh, within my family and then the extended family, you know, partly extended family in Boralula, which is a big extended family. Everybody's related and it's amazing and brilliant and, and uh, you know, it's just a, a beautiful place to have a belonging to. And then the broader Aboriginal community, I mean, again, Travis, <laughs> you, you detest anyone who spends time in the Aboriginal community, it's full of good humour and 
fun and um, heart and family and great values. And the, you know, I think the media often what we see is the dysfunction and the the negativity. But um, you know, for me, being part of the Aboriginal community has been a great privilege. And um, it's you know something that when John and I had our kids, we decided that we would want to have them really firmly based in their uh, in their own Aboriginal community and that they would have this comfort that John has in his skin and that he has in both camps of the world. Um, and I think that's something we've focused on. But I think in the broader sense, um, Australia's got a really, really long way to go. I mean, uh, my, my other hat, my business hat, we, uh, we, we design for major infrastructure and the Aboriginal narrative in our public places is still so invisible. You know, you walk around Circular Quay and you'll see plenty of information about the First Fleet and um, the arrival of my forebears. Um, but, you know, the stories haven't gone anywhere. They're, they're, they're still under all that concrete. So I think there's there's a real reawakening. And I think the new gener the younger generation, so, you know, our kids' generation in their 30s and even younger are no longer thinking this is acceptable or okay. So I think these conversations are gathering momentum and uh, as, as they necessarily need to. And in terms of football, it's it's long overdue. I mean, it's it's uh, it's just long overdue that the opportunities open up for the benefit of the game. Uh, we need this talent. It's phenomenal talent. Deep ball instead. Travis Dodd and Fabian Barbiero in close range has doubled the advantage for Adelaide United. And you can see the Reds reinforcements heading for the danger zone. It's the floated ball to the back stick. Travis Dodd up like a salmon, a spawning salmon. And the game has a responsibility, I think, as an, as an Australian code to um, provide what it can to, um, to assist with, you know, what the Aboriginal community needs in terms of being included, um, you know, having access to opportunities, being supported to be at that starting line. And, uh, you know, with Women's Football Council, obviously we're extremely excited about the Women's World Cup coming here in 2023. And, uh, you know, the whole world would be looking at what we're doing in women's football, but all football really. And uh, it really behoves us that that is not just a festival, but it really has some deep roots into what we were doing about football for First Nations. Well, that's powerful stuff. I'll get on to the player production point in a moment. But, Travis, just wanted to ask you, how do you feel when you're here those stories. Yeah, look, it's uh, yeah, particularly, I guess, with John's story, it is it even for me as uh, you know an Indigenous person growing up uh, and not knowing a lot about the the stolen generation and and what that meant to to hear stories like that and you know, to be taken like that and not knowing just that that I guess when you have kids yourself, it's you imagine from you know John's mother's point of view like what how horrific that must have been and to think that that was the norm back then is is scary um you know it's taken uh, I guess a long time for you know that uh, to be recognized as you know such an atrocity type uh, thing um you know interestingly um you know my dad didn't speak a lot about um you know his childhood uh, um, when he was growing up, but I was told of a story where where he was taken as well, um, you know, from his house in uh, in Narracourt in South Australia. Um, but fortunately, was was found by family and friends 
only a couple of hours later. Um, so they were able to take him back and take him back to his mum and dad. Now I, th I think about things like that. And when I, when I heard that it was you know, how his life would have changed, um, completely if, if, you know, he hadn't been found by by family and what that would have meant you know, I think about that and I wouldn't be here I wouldn't be here speaking today if you know the events had turned out differently so it's 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 sad to think of uh, that that life that that people had growing up and I guess talking about the participation and, and things like that one thing I will say in regards to uh, you know football and, and in particular JMF uh, and what I'm trying or what we've started in in Adelaide with the the training academy is that whilst I believe it's it's fantastic as a byproduct if we can get uh, more indigenous players in the game and if that then leads to future Matildas and and future Socceroos fantastic but if we can give these kids an education and teach them life skills that you know even if they don't go on and play the game beyond that, that they can go out and impact one other person in the community to, to help them become a better person in their community uh, and help them, I guess, with life skills that they've learned along the way that football has provided these opportunities for. That's, yeah, that's the real win for me. Yeah, or to the point of the SA Paps, even both, uh, as was the case with Charles Absolutely. Perkins and... John Moriarty and Gordon Briscoe as well. Now, back onto the players. I mean, when you talk about yourself, Travis, over 350 professional games of football, a lot of goals in there as well. Couldn't quite crack the 100, but I've got uh, about 65. Uh, I'm not sure if you've got the exact stats there. But look, you, Taj Minicon, James Brown, Dave Williams, we see Tate Russell coming through the system now at Western Sydney Wanderers. Real excitement machines, these Indigenous footballers. Great to watch. Kaya Simon also uh, for the Matildas. But um, why... Why are we producing so few and, and what needs to happen? Well, I, I think now it becomes, unfortunately, it's so cost prohibitive to to send kids to play the game. Uh, at a federation level, when you're charging uh, you know, upwards of $1,000 a year, I know in, in Adelaide that's certainly you know, around the average, if not more, uh, it's, it's very difficult to ask parents and this is not just in people in the, in the indigenous community it's the the refugee community as well to to ask them to 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 pay that type of money uh, and play the game when in comparison you know Aussie rules is is a hundred bucks for a season and New South Wales and Victoria are in excess of of two thousand yeah and that's exactly the point um to Ros's point earlier you look at what the AFL's done and the significant investments that they've made that goes a long way into the into the communities they're they're handing out the footies and they're kicking the ball with these kids and that's what they know they they don't know soccer Borulula aside where that's all they play uh, the other communities just haven't had that opportunity and Ultimately, that comes down to the head body being the FFA, stumping up the money and you know, getting out there and doing it. And it's been frustrating for me in the the 15 or 16 years that the league's been going to see the federation stop-start so many programs 
directed towards Indigenous football. I think the extent of it has been an Indigenous football festival that they've held maybe you know, four or five times. Now, what is the the purpose of that? It's you're not going to you're not going to develop players there. If you if you identify one player from that tournament, what's your plan next? Are you going to bring them into the city from the community? How are you going to support them? You know, in school, it's it's there's so many things that the federation you know have the opportunities they've missed. And look now, it's there's a there's a new leader, new CEO with uh, James Johnson, and he needs to be given this opportunity. And he, he came out uh, with a report, the the football principles, and said that they would have uh, an indigenous uh, player development um, role implemented in the first quarter of 2021. And as you said, Roz, it's great to see that that's now been advertised uh, in a in a part time capacity. But let's hope that that leads into you know, full time and and beyond in in big numbers that we can get out into the community on on a regular basis and, and really grow the game. It shouldn't be on uh, JMF as a foundation to grow the game. And it shouldn't be the FFA just latching onto that and you know getting a free ride to, and putting their name and saying, yeah, we're, we're part of this now. No, you need, to, you need to develop your own programs and you need to invest the time and money uh, and your own programs to be able to complement what JMF is already doing. Ros, anything to add to that? Yeah, I couldn't agree more with uh, with you both. Actually, um, it's uh, yeah. Look, it's critical that everyone plays their part here, and uh, I guess football, in a way, um, is in a fortunate position. In one sense, I guess, out of adversity, the fact that there was nothing happening um, for the past ten years, and that JMF jumped into that spot, and we've been able to, you know, get support from places like Department of Health in Canberra that has understood what those bigger game benefits are and has been able to support us to do this. You know, John and I can volunteer, which we do. Um, we, we can do all that and we can build a great team, which we have. Um, but the Aboriginal community itself, you know, really has expectations that not only will this continue and grow, we're looking to go national um, from 22 onwards from next year. Um, so looking to go into Victoria, uh, Western Australia and South Australia and Tasmania. Um, so really giving all those kids all over Australia the opportunity for very tailored, very customised, um, you know, um, programs that are specifically geared and designed and they're definitely dove they dovetail with the national curriculum, but there are elements of magic that reflect in the magic we see on the field in players like you, Travis, in you know, careers like like John's, Harry Williams, others, the Matildas now. Um, but that's really important, but we really need the, the national body to help with um, pathways and competition pipelines. And, you know, quite recently we brought out um, uh, Warren Grieve and others came out from Football New South Wales to to do um, sea licences with our coaches. You know, our, we have an all-Indigenous coaching team in Dubbo. Um, they all uh, undertook the sea licence. Uh, they could never have done that if there wasn't the flexibility to bring that coaching course out to a region, but it would never have happened if we hadn't put the structure in place. So we're happy to keep doing those things, but we really need to be met halfway and to have these uh, this more flexible approach. And football will see the benefit, but our view is that the Indigenous community will be a great beneficiary and that's necessary. You know, that, that outcome is, is absolutely critical and it's ethical and it's, uh, it's, it's where the code needs to be. Speaking of magic, we failed to mention that Adam Goods played his played football as a junior, which is clearly where he got his 
skill to become <laughs> one of the greats of the AFL. Okay, we need to wrap it up, but uh, as always, we'll ask for some closing remarks. We'll uh, we'll start with you, Travis Dodd. Look, I from what we've discussed today, I, I think it it is clear that uh, football has uh, a long way to go in terms of uh, the development of, uh, of Indigenous kids within the, the game, um, but there are clear um, signs that we are starting to get on the right track from a, a federation perspective. Um, it's, yeah, I'm, I'm very pleased to, to be involved with the South Australian Aboriginal Training Association. Uh, we're into our second year of uh, running a football academy that's endorsed by the, the state government. So uh, it's an opportunity to you know, start a football program Last year we had nine kids, uh, this year we've doubled so uh, to 18. So hopefully with you know, these types of programs, we can build on you know, getting more kids playing the game, but also uh, you know, developing their life skills, getting them uh, the education that we need them to have to go and be productive members of, of our society for the next generation. Um, I, I hope that uh, from looking through the lens of the, the racial stuff that you know, our next generation coming through, as you said, Roz, uh, our kids uh, are certainly the ones that realise that this is not okay um, in terms of you know, Australia Day uh, and the, the, the racial stuff we see on a daily basis. So you know, uh, I'd love to, to be able to, to, to see that development uh, in, the, in the years to come. Roz Moriarty? A bit of gratitude from us, I think, um, David, in that Adam Goods, as you say, started uh, his career in football and uh, he often said that the field wasn't big enough. Um, he, he wanted he wanted to run more. Um, so when we, we were across his career from the start, you know, he came to Sydney as a young 19-year-old and he would come and eat with us and it was fantastic to see his career develop. Devastating to see what ensued. Um, last year, our Indigenous Football Week, which is our fifth iteration of that event, um, Adam was our patron. So we're doing all we can to get Adam back in the round ball game and to keep him there. I know he plays. Um, so, you know, that's that's been really fantastic. And, uh, and also, you know, paying tribute to people like uh, Craig Foster, who is an enormous advocate for Indigenous football, you know, has long predated this discussion. He's been on our board for the past 10 years since we uh, you know, inaugural board member and is very vocal and uh, very informed. He's been to Baralola twice. Um, he's, he's, he's done clinics for us. Um, he talks a lot about the methodologies of teaching skill within games, not necessarily through drills. I mean, he's we all know Craig is incredibly sharp and uh, committed, um, but he's also hugely insightful in terms of Indigenous football and as a guiding light for us and for our young program managers and coaches and our cohort across Australia. You know, he is um, an absolute standout and superstar. So, um, you know, young Gemma Simon came out to Dubbo for us for our gala day. Jada Wyman's just joined staff. She's just joined us as staff. Um, obviously, she'll be pursuing her goalkeeping career and other things as well. But I think um, bringing great people into the corner of this um, of Indigenous football and having it led by and for the Aboriginal communities is really critical from our point of view. And last but not least, John Didelitzer. Oh, look, David, certainly in this company, I'm absolutely least um, having listened to Roz and, and Travis during this time. Um, but when, when I started this series, one of the stories that jumped out at me straight away was John's. You know, I've had the fortune to 
know Roz and John for the past decade, you know, through my involvement in, in football and, and John's story was so powerful. And it spoke to me, you know, about how if we get things right within football, we can unlock, you know, the potential of our nation. And that's why we're passionate about football is because we think it can actually make the nation we live in more effective, more inclusive. Um, it can help us break through that glass ceiling that colonialism places on us all. And that's incredibly important. That's where I see these parallels between football culture and indigenous culture is that they're not allowed to be ventilated and, and grown. They're always framed within what it means to be Australian in the traditional English sense of what it means to be Australian. And I think football has an opportunity to, to break that and to become far more um, reflective of who we are in 2021 than who we were in 1921. And football, embracing football is a part of that, embracing uh, the First Nations people is a big part of that. And if we don't, I think as a nation, we'll suffer. You know, one of our great poets within football is Johnny Warren, obviously, and there was a great Australian anthropologist called W.E.H. Stanner who wrote a short story or a poem um, some years ago at a Boya or Boya lecture, and he spoke about this thing called the Great Australian Silence. And the Great Australian Silence was effectively forgetting our past, forgetting the challenges of Indigenous people and pretending they didn't exist. And Ross spoke about this invisibility uh, before. And if we don't, you know, embrace football, if we don't embrace uh, the First Nations people appropriately, you know, we're going to be stuck in this rut. We're going to be stuck in this Australia that really fits better in the 1930s and the 1940s. And, you know, the term I've used in my book is that we're destined to become the game for Sheila's Wogs and Poofters and the First Nations people locked out by the great Australian silence. So I think it's incumbent on football not to, you know, harvest Indigenous communities for the odd Socceroo, the odd Matilda. It's important for football to tell the stories of John Moriarty and Charles Perkins because football allowed them, those two men, to shape this nation as much as possible for the better. And the more we can do that, the more football can contribute to allowing the First Nations people to have a genuine voice in shaping this nation and that's the only way we, we can become the nation we need to be. Roz, John Travis, thanks for your contributions. Uh, an honour to do this podcast with your very powerful episode of Football Belongs. You can catch the other episodes of Football Belongs podcast and, of course, read the essays on the Optusport digital channels. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.